It's Latabo's time on the night shift at the Castle of Good Hope. He's just locked the main gate when he hears a strange sound. It sounds like an animal, but Latabo is in the main courtyard, alone. This time, the growl is coming from behind him, but Latabo is scared to look. Slowly, he turns. Behind him is... It's not a dog, but it's also not anything else either. A mass of dark fur that moves like smoke and is impossibly large, as big as a lion. Then he sees the teeth. Latabo was running, the harsh pump of blood in his ears, his feet hitting stone. The sound of the dog, the thing running after him, so close. Latabo feels hot breath on the backs of his legs. If he can only get to the doors of the castle, but he trips and falls hard. He flips onto his back as fast as he can, scrambling to get away as the dog runs toward him. Darkness and teeth and horrible yellow eyes. Latabo throws an arm over his face, and then... silence. When Latabo lets his shaking arm fall, the path behind him is empty. It's like there was never anything there at all. Welcome to Haunted Places on the Parcast Network. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to the Castle of Huda Hope, or Castle of Good Hope, the oldest surviving building in South Africa and the center of civilian, military, and political life at the Cape, and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merch. Head to Parcast.com slash merch for more information. Built in 1666, the Castle of Good Hope was a stronghold where dreams of a new life in South Africa began for Dutch and British settlers. Like most medieval European castles, this fort was also a small community and town. Far from being just a military outpost, the castle acted as the hub of society. It hosted a church, a bakery, numerous workshops, living quarters and offices, in addition to the areas where soldiers trained and worked with their families. The design and architecture of the castle show the influences of the many cultures who have passed through and made their mark. These cultures brought more than just artistic influence. Settlers brought their own customs and ideas to the Cape that would continue to impact it right up to modern day. 
But the clash of cultures and colonialism always leads to violence. It's impossible to deny that much of the history of the Castle of Good Hope is stained with blood. During the 18th century, the Castle of Good Hope was home to Governor Pieter Giesbert van Noot, a man whose militant ways would lead to more than one grisly end. And though one might think that this violence is over now, relegated to the past, one thing is for sure, there are certain things that refuse to be buried. Femka is standing in the kitchen of the governor's house, making bread. Her older brother Hendrik is perched on the counter beside her, stealing bits of raw dough to eat. She tries to box his ears, but he ducks out of the way, laughing. It's hard to hide her smile, so Femka doesn't try. Hendrik starts complaining about the long hours, horrible pay, and ghastly living conditions that come with being in the army as Femka prepares the oven for the bread. Despite the punishments for deserting, Hendrik envisions leaving the castle entirely, starting a farm somewhere, past where the settlers have colonized. He spins a tale about expansive land, where things grow without much work, and he is his own master. Femka always asks where she is in these dreams, and Hendrik waves her away. She's there, he assures her. These are familiar fantasies, so Femka is only half listening, until he starts choking. At first, she thinks Hendrik is playing with her again, but when she looks at him, he is clawing violently at his throat. Femka rushes over to help, tugging at his collar, trying to see inside his gasping mouth. Under the scratches on his neck is a harsh, dark line as though something has wrapped around him and squeezed. The color rushes from his face, and Femka calls for help. Then, he's yanked away from her. Something holds him in the air with invisible hands. Femka screams in terror, scrabbling at her brother's legs, trying to pull him down. But his body starts to seize, and he kicks her in the ribs. He's trying to say something, something important. She leans closer. Demka, Hendrik chokes out. Why didn't you save me? Demka screams for help again, but it feels like Hendrik's voice just gets louder around her. Why didn't you save me? Why didn't you save me? Demka sits bolt upright in bed, gasping, choking like Hendrik. She can still hear him shouting at her, just as he shouted on the gallows. He cursed the governor with his last breath to suffer and die alone, trapped forever in the castle with his sins. He was still screaming when they put the rope around his neck. He was still screaming when the floor beneath him fell away. If Hendrik had more time, would he have cursed her because she didn't help him? held back by a rabid crowd, hands pulling at her hair, her apron, her skin. Would he have asked her the question she cannot unhear over and over in her head? Why didn't you save me? As her heartbeat finally slows a little, Femka wants to tell herself that it was just a nightmare. 
but now that she's awake, she knows that isn't true. It's been nearly a month since Hendrik was hanged at the gallows, under Governor Van Noot's orders. Femke can still see him thrashing at the end of the rope, and his terrified, swollen expression. Hendrik's face is all she sees when she closes her eyes. But tonight, at last, that will change. The other servants feel badly enough for Femke that they've started sending her on outdoor errands so she won't have to see the governor. She's worked for Van Noot for most of her life, but now, just being inside his quarters makes her skin feel too tight. Today, Femke's errands are simple. A quick stop to the seamstress, then picking up flour, sugar, and other staples at the general store, before delivering messages from Van Noot to other nobility. But her last task is the one she dreads the most. She must retrieve the new fire poker from the blacksmith, and to do so, Femke has to pass the gallows. She's been avoiding this part of town since Hendrik died, but she's almost glad she must see it today. It's as close as she can get to her brother now. Usually the noose is taken down between hangings, but today they've left it out. The loop at the end gapes open like a mouth, just waiting for a neck. When the wind blows, Femke can hear the wood of the gallows creaking and protesting the wind. She breathes in and closes her eyes. The typical punishment for deserting is prison time or public whipping. But Van Noot decided an example needed to be made for the rest of the soldiers. And one of the unlucky ones attempting to desert that morning was Femke's brother. Hendrik was caught leaving. And not just leaving the castle, but leaving her. Femke tells herself that she must not have realized how serious he was, or she would have stopped him. But the truth is, she knew Hendrik was serious. She just didn't think he would leave without her, or without at least telling her. Femke thought she was enough to keep him here. But she knows better now. Is that why you let me die? Hendrik murmurs in her head. Is that why you didn't save me? She's just as guilty of leaving him as he is of leaving her. Or even more so. There are scratches deep in Femke's arms where her hands held her back from the gallows. But she could have fought back. She should have raged until they let her go. Why didn't you save me? Hendrik asks from the gallows. His eyes are shot through with blood, swollen tongue protruding from his mouth as his legs kick and kick and... Startled, Femke opens her eyes. Hendrik is gone, and the noose she swore she saw is also gone. The wind, quiet. Tonight, she will make Hendrik stop screaming. She walks past the gallows and into the blacksmith's shop. Garth, the blacksmith, is nearly an old man, 
He's been working in the castle since Femka and Hendrik were children. When he looks at her, Femka sees her own pain mirrored in his eyes. Garth was fond of Hendrik. Femka takes the fire poker and the small wrapped bundle Garth slips her. His hands are shaking, but hers are steady as she stuffs the bundle into the folds of her skirt. When she gets back to the governor's quarters, Femka goes through the rest of her chores in a daze. Before she knows it, it's evening, and she's alone in her chamber again. This time, she doesn't blow out the candle. Instead, she waits up until the house is completely quiet. Then she opens the bundle from Garth and takes what he hid inside. Just as Femka expected, Van Noot has fallen asleep in his big chair in the study. The fire is still smoldering, throwing off enough light that Femka can see the outline of him. From here, he doesn't even look like a person, just a monster-shaped mass in the dark. She goes to take a step into the room, and his arm jerks suddenly. Femka freezes. She tries to quiet her harsh breathing as she waits a minute. Two. Five. He doesn't move again. Holding her breath, she creeps across the rug to his sleeping form. Dagger clutched in both of her hands. She is shaking so hard that she must stop afraid the dagger will fall from her fingers. But even in the quiet of the room, it is not quiet in her head. Why didn't you save me? I couldn't, Femke wills Hendrik to understand. But I will avenge you. She creeps closer to the governor until she's near enough to smell the sour stench of his snores. Femka raises the dagger. She stands there, trying to give herself the courage to slash down. She wishes, more than anything, that Hendrik was still here to be brave for her. Suddenly, in front of Femka's eyes, the governor starts choking. Around his neck appears a black mark, as though invisible hands are strangling him, shaking him. Vanute claws out for her, as though Femka can help save him. She hears her name in Hendrik's voice, and then she is stabbing down and in, as Vanute chokes under her brother's invisible hands. Down and in, ripping. Down and in. Femka stabs the governor until she is gasping for breath through her own sobs. She is wet to the elbow with something sticky, and the whole room stinks of blood. The knife falls from Femke's hands. Before her eyes, the black mark on the governor's throat fades away. Suddenly, invisible, cold fingers squeeze hers gently. She hears her brother's voice again. Thank you, Hendrik tells her. Thank you. Don't leave me, Femke wants to tell him. Don't leave me here without you. 
Then, something moves past her in the air, like an exhale of breath. And then, it's over, and she's alone. The only living thing left in the room. Though the number of soldiers sentenced to death varies in each tale, history agrees that in April of 1729, Governor Van Noot hanged a group of deserters as an example to the others. Later, Governor Pieter Giesbert Van Noot was found dead from mysterious causes in his home, still sitting upright with a look of terror on his face. The fulfillment of a man's last curse or revenge by the many people of the castle who hated Newt. History doesn't tell us. What we do know is that to this very day, the ghost of the governor can be spotted pacing the castle, cursing and railing at his fate. Like the men he killed, Newt is doomed to forever wander the castle, halfway between the living and the dead. Coming up, we'll have more from the castle's dark history. Now back to the story. Unfortunately, the legacy of violence at the Castle of Good Hope isn't limited to the machinations of Governor Van Noot. From the castle's inception, it was also used as a prison to contain the wicked, the revolutionaries, and enemies of those in power. But there was more to crime and punishment in the early 18th century than simple jail time. For those imprisoned in the castle's dungeon, the Donkerhot, or Dark Hole, things were far, far worse. Inside the corner of the old recruitment building at the Castle of Good Hope, the Donkerhot was positioned right next to a torture room. This placement was for more than just convenience. According to Dutch law, a prisoner had to confess his crimes before his sentence could be executed. And whether a prisoner was in the torture chamber or just listening to the sounds of another suffering next door, this strategy proved very persuasive. But it wasn't only human powers that made the Donker Hot such a hellish place to be detained. There were other natural forces at work to ensure that most of the prisoners who entered here would not exit again, or at least not alive. Stephen is dreaming of the ocean when he is awoken by soldiers bursting through his door. He's still half asleep when they drag him from his bed and begin to beat him, heavy boots against his ribs, his head, his face. One boot to the back of the head sends Stephen into unconsciousness. When Stephen comes to, the first thing he notices is his throbbing head. The room he's in is completely dark. His fingers on the floor brush against cold stone, slimy and wet. He reaches up to touch his aching head, but his arm is restrained by something. He tries again, and hears chains rattle. He's been shackled to the wall. Stephen calls out to see who is there, and a man's voice responds. He has an accent, 
and his speech is stilted, broken English. Stephen understands only a few words in every sentence, but he gathers that this is a native chief from a nearby tribe, thrown into this dungeon when he sought to trade with settlers. There's no crime greater to the East India Company than trying to steal some of its profit, except conspiring against the company, the governor, or the crown directly. The chief doesn't ask, but when silence falls between them in this dark place underground, it feels too much like the grave. There's nothing to do here but tell his story to a man he's not sure can even understand. At the time, Stephen thought it was a quiet discussion among friends in a private parlor. Just a gentle disagreement between nobles on the correct course of action for the governor when it came to new shipping laws. They were even playing cards. But as the wine flowed, Stephen must have said something a little too bold or scandalous. His weakness has always been drinking. And now, more than ever, he curses himself for his bad habits. Stephen can't even guess at what he might have said, but any number of things would be enough to get him sent here. He wonders which of his friends reported him, and if there was a reward for doing so. The chief tells Stephen that he's been taken from this room once before, and hurt. He says, pain, much pain. The chains rattle, as though he is moving his arms to show how much. Stephen thanks God that he cannot see the chief. He cannot bear to see how he has been mutilated. The types of injuries that surely await him as well. Stephen's shoulders ache from where his arms are chained to the wall. He's only wearing the thin nightshirt that he had when the soldiers dragged him out of bed. And it is soaked through. Stephen starts shivering and cannot stop. The chief asks him how long the other white men will keep them in this dark hole. All Stephen can do in response is weep. The rain falls outside, and then it falls harder. Stephen cannot see the lightning, but he knows it must be there, judging by the thunder. Under the stones, the water beneath them rushes faster, rougher. It washes up through the stones so that it starts to puddle on the dungeon floor. The water numbs his body and smells of salt. After what feels like days, but must only be hours, there's a sound in the room next door. From somewhere in the dark, the chief tells him not to listen to cover his ears. Stephen doesn't understand what he means and strains to hear better. Stephen recoils back against the cold wall, but the screams continue. The chief says he doesn't know the word for it in the language these white men speak. Torture, Stephen tells him, as if the word could make it stop. The chief tells Stephen that the room next door is full of horrifying instruments, Ones like the whip, buckets of boiling or freezing water, cold and sharp metal things the chief cannot name. They keep asking him questions, the chief says, questions I do not know how to answer. 
I tell them the truth, and I am hurt. I tell them lies, and I am hurt. The chief says, I tell them what they want me to say, and they still hurt me, and I do not understand. Steve is shaking, partially from fear, partially from the cold stone ground. Thunder is so frequent now that he must strain to hear the chief. It feels like his very bones are weighed with water. Stephen knows that under Dutch rule, a person cannot be charged with a crime until they confess. He tries to explain this to the chief, raising his voice to be heard over the pitiful sounds next door. It is only after confession that the accused person can be punished. If that is punishment, then what is this? asks the chief. What is the difference? Stephen doesn't know what to say to him. The chief is silent for a long moment and then tells Stephen not to scream, not to speak when they hurt him. It's better to die like a man. And watch for the water, the chief adds. This sounds like bravery far beyond what Stephen possesses, so he doesn't respond. There is no longer silence between them, but the raging of the storm, the gurgling water rising from below, the unending rain. After what seems to be an eternity, the door to their dungeon is wrenched open, and smoky light from a guttering torch pours in. Stephen blinks against the light as two soldiers chain the weeping, tortured man across from him. He can't bear to look at the other man's injuries, so he turns to look at the chief. But the corner where the other man's voice was coming from is empty. Stephen asks the soldiers where the chief is, the African man who was in the cell with him. They don't answer. Just finish the shackles and leave, plunging the torture victim and Stephen into darkness again. Desperate, Stephen tries to question the man across from him. He can't see him any longer, but he can smell something coppery, metallic, unmistakably blood, and something sharper still. The tortured man has wet himself. Finally, the other man manages to respond to Stephen in words, though they sound like they're coming through a broken nose. He was in this room before Stephen was here, taken out and then put back. He does not know how many times. The water on the floor of the dungeon continues to rise and is high enough to reach his knees. The other man seems to be on the edge of lucidity, coughing weakly and then crying from the pain. Stephen must be fast with his questions and barks them out in between squalls of wind and thunder. What about the African man who was in here? Stephen asks. The tortured man moans and tells him there was no one here before Stephen arrived, that he was alone. Stephen insists that there was a man in here talking to him. Stephen drags a shaking hand over his face. The water continues to rise, covering his legs, numbing every part of him. It smells 
salty and foul. He asks the man if it floods often when it rains. The man's response scares Stephen more than anything else has all night. He laughs. He laughs and laughs. The ocean is right below us, the man explains, and it wants to come inside the castle. (laughs) Stephen nearly slips on the wet stone and flails his arms as the water rises. He shouts at the top of his lungs for the other man, telling him that prisoners are not supposed to be held here for longer than 24 hours. It's the law, one that Stephen's neighbor himself witnessed and acted. This time, the man's laughter is almost indiscernible from the rushing water. It sounds as though it is coming from every direction, until Stephen isn't sure what sound is water and what is human. The water rises enough that he's off his feet, being pushed closer to the ceiling. He tries to use his arms to brace himself, but the chains won't reach. The water is up to his neck now, and Stephen feels the panic, white hot and horrible in his chest. The chief told him not to open his mouth. The chief said, watch for the water. Stephen keeps his mouth closed as long as he can, and when he's forced to draw in breath, it tastes like the ocean. Water pouring around his ears, his eyes, into his mouth. When Stephen screams into the water, it makes no sound. The Castle of Good Hope was built right on the coast of South Africa, making the Donker Hut flood often with ocean water from below, and never faster than during a storm. Prisoners were held there and then tortured until they confessed to their crimes, or even tortured to death before they could confess or deny anything. There was no discrimination. Everyone from chiefs of native tribes to treasonous nobles were kept there together. Chained to the wall, these prisoners had no means of escape when the Donker Hut filled with water. Their only way out was the ocean. Coming up, we'll have more from the Castle of Good Hope and its infamous dungeon. Now, back to the story. Echoes of trauma from the victims of violence must have sunk into the yellow-painted stone of the Castle of Good Hope. It's almost as though they can't leave the castle without making sure everyone knows the depth of their pain. And to find proof, all you need to do is investigate the Dunkerhot. Workers and visitors at the castle have reported hearing footsteps and voices down narrow corridors that should be empty, or inside the windowless dungeon itself, when they seem to be there alone. But then, no one is alone in the Dunkerhot. You intended to be out of the Castle of Good Hope and back at your comfortable hotel long before nightfall. Your phone is nearly dead from taking pictures, and you've been on your feet all day. But when your sister strikes up a conversation with the guard, you find the two of you are suddenly being given a behind-the-scenes tour after hours. 
The Castle of Good Hope is beautiful. And you like history as much as anyone. But by the time you've seen the main courtyards and start exploring further passageways, it's become clear that your sister and the guard might appreciate some time exploring on their own. So you hang back and keep to yourself. After a few days of vacation, you still haven't managed to kick the jet lag entirely. And quickly, you feel dehydrated and out of sorts. The electric lights kick on as the sun sinks, and you stop to finish off your water bottle. You're in some sort of interior courtyard now, and you can see your sister and the guard across the way. Feeling awkward just standing there staring, you head for the closest corner, thinking you can sit down by one of the gnarled trees and take a break. You didn't notice it at first, but there's a large wooden green door here, leading back into one of the buildings. It's unlocked, already half open. You look over your shoulder to see your sister and the guard have wandered further away, walking close together. Maybe there's chairs inside this room where you could sit and wait, or even a water fountain, or a bathroom. You can't see very far into the room, but you notice right away that it's dusty. Very dusty. There better be a bathroom here, preferably with tissues. You take a few steps forward when you suddenly trip over something. You catch yourself before you fall and turn the light from your phone toward the ground. It looks like a ball and chain, something to keep a prisoner from running. Around you are stone walls that are dark with age, or maybe smoke stains. There's something bolted to the wall opposite. You think about turning on your phone's flashlight to explore a little more and avoid tripping over anything else. But the battery is really low, so you decide against it. Instead, you feel blindly with your hands and discover more wall shackles. This room must have been a prison at one point, you reason, and they have left artifacts here as part of the history. The wind slams the door shut and plunges you into darkness. You try and calm your pounding heart and fumble to turn on your flashlight. Forget your phone battery. You just want to have enough light to find the door and leave, no matter what your sister feels like doing. Your eyes feel gritty from lack of sleep, and there are blisters on both of your feet. Your fingers slip on the screen, and your phone falls. You try and catch it, but it slips through your hands and goes skittering away across the floor. You can see it in a far corner, but as you move toward it, the screen dims. There's the outline of an empty battery flashing on screen, and then... The screen goes dark. You spit out a curse and keep walking forward. It's a small square room, so you'll just grab the phone and then walk back out of the door. You've got your hands held out in front of you, so you don't walk face first into the stone. And you've only taken two steps when you feel it. Warm wind on the back of your neck. You reach up to fix your hair. 
But it's then you realize that there can't be wind inside here. The door is closed. You feel the wind on the back of your neck again. Arms flailing, you whip around. But your fingers touch nothing. Of course, there's no one there. Your heart is beating fast now. You spin back around and move toward where you think your phone has landed. You're going to get your phone, get your sister, and get out of this place. You call out, sure that there must be someone in here with you. But again, you get no answer. From a different direction, you hear the ball and chain being rolled across the floor toward you. Then, outside, you hear your sister calling your name. It's faint. She's far away, looking for you out in the courtyard, probably. You flail out with an arm and find the wall, hitting it with the side of your hand so hard that it hurts. You crouch down and scrabble at the floor. Your phone should be right here. The ground is damp and disgusting under your touch. You call for your sister, shout out her name, trying to keep your voice from shaking. Your fingers brush against a rectangular shape. Your phone. You curl your hand around it. But just then, a freezing hand comes out of the dark and grips your arm, fingernails digging into your skin. You try to yank your arm back, but whatever has you doesn't want to let go. You kick out, screaming, but the thing grabs onto your ankle too. This time when you scream, you're not the only one. There's screaming coming from every direction, like the room is full of people. The sounds of whimpering, crying, people shouting for help in English and languages you don't recognize. Please to stop. Suddenly, the door flies open. It's the guard. The faint electric light from the courtyard outlining him. Everything goes quiet. Your sister rushes inside and grabs you, holds you close. She's asking you questions, like if you're all right, but you can't answer. You can't look away from the empty corner of the room where a thing reached out and grabbed you. The guard asks why you're inside the Donker Hunt. He lights a match, and for the first time, it's bright enough for you to see the other door inside that's ajar. He points to it and explains that the connected torture chamber and this dungeon are not to be disturbed at night. You open your mouth, maybe to answer him, maybe to reassure your sister. His match goes out. You run out of there as though the devil is on your heels. Because maybe this time, he is. Employees and visitors to the Castle of Good Hope report hearing people screaming from inside the Donkerhot, voices that follow them. No one is eager to take the night shift in that part of the castle. Even those who aren't superstitious say it gives them a bad feeling. 
it seems that the graffiti carved into the walls is not the only thing that prisoners might have left behind. Above the door to the Donkerhot hangs a horseshoe. While this normally might be a sign of good luck, this particular horseshoe is turned upside down. Luck for those in the Donkerhot had run out. Today, the Castle of Good Hope is a site of learning, housing rare collections and preserving the rich history of South Africa in its restored splendor. An event space for everything from private weddings to important speakers to food drives and fundraisers. The modern castle is not only a piece of history, but an active player in the modern Cape Town world. The Castle of Good Hope stands as a monument to great suffering, great achievement, and now, hopefully, a place to learn about the dangers of colonialism and xenophobia. It's hard to remember when listening to the ghost stories, but the castle is a big social hub for the modern Cape. It's an amazing learning opportunity and a chance to immerse yourself in the past. So if you find yourself in South Africa, don't be afraid to go and visit the Castle of Good Hope. Just make sure you don't look too deeply or too long. Something or someone could be looking back. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back next Thursday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next week. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Ron Shapiro. With production assistance by Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. Haunted Places is written by Megan Callahan. I'm Greg Polson. Mm-hmm.